Whenever I go to a congregation and I talk about families and God's ideal for the home, I recognize that there may be some people who feel left out of the presentations that I'm offering. And I recognize that some people may feel left out of those kind of presentations because of their present circumstances. After all, what about those people who are singled? What about those who've never had children? What about those who are widowed? There's always a danger in presenting a biblical picture of the ideal family, mom, dad, and the kids, that you'll leave the impression that it is the only way to live, to be mature, or to be complete spiritually, and that's just not true. If we had time, I could take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 or 1 Timothy chapter 5. Both of those passages tell us that there are occasions when it's best to be married and there are situations in which it's best to be single. In fact, Paul says that there are some circumstances in which the single and the widowed can be even more devoted to God than others. And I could give you, if we had time, a couple of dozen scriptures tonight that indicate God has a special place in his heart for the widow for the parent who's left alone, or for the orphan. My point is simply this. Whenever we emphasize the importance of the family, we're not saying that mom, dad, and the kids is the only viable option. In fact, we need to be careful that we don't leave the impression that the way to solve all your problems if you're single is to go out and get married, or that the way to uh, fix a shaky marriage is to have a baby. I can tell you that doesn't always work. And the Bible is much more realistic than that. So I recognize that there are some people who may be more discouraged than helped unless we acknowledge that there are other viable family forms. But I am particularly concerned tonight about another group who may become uneasy whenever they hear lessons on the Christian home. There are some people who may feel left out because of their past family experiences. I have learned over the years that there's a considerable number of people who simply are not sentimental about home. There are people who hear those sermons on honor your father and your mother and they cringe. There are individuals who stiffen whenever I talk about the importance of a Christian home because they didn't grow up in a happy, healthy, holy home. Let me tell you something else. Over the years, I've grown to understand just how deep can be the hurt of an unhappy childhood. And I have learned from so many folks that there is no pain more lasting than homegrown. As I've become aware of how many individuals are growing up in a less than ideal circumstances, there are multitudes of children in America who are growing up in broken homes. There are people who had parents who were abusive, who were neglectful, who never were encouraged or made to feel loved when they were children. Sometimes the problem is that the home was filled with bickering and conflict and strife. Other times it is a parent who has abandoned the family, both physically and emotionally. I could tell you horror stories all night about the things that I've seen and I've heard Maybe, just maybe, some of you could tell stories of your own. 
Stories about being ashamed to bring your friends to your home. About secretly wishing that you had been born into somebody else's family. About thinking that you were the only person in the world who had a family like you, yours. About never knowing which boyfriend mom would bring home tonight or lying awake in your bed wondering if dad was going to come home drunk again. Not everybody grew up in a Christian home. And sometimes when I make these presentations, I recognize that there are individuals in the audience who are sitting there thinking, well, does that mean there's something wrong with me? Did I get cheated out of life? Am I missing something? And to be honest, I have seen some individuals who have been dragged down by their past family experience, who are loaded down with bitterness or resentment or guilt or insecurity. And what is it that I say to those individuals? Well, I, I say two things. First, I say, yes, anything less than a strong, intact Christian home is less than ideal. I would be dishonest if I didn't tell you that. And yes, if you didn't experience that growing up, you probably were cheated to some extent. But I probably don't have to tell you that. Those of you who became Christians later in life usually have a a keen sense of what you missed all those years. So the first thing I say is, yes. But the second thing I say is, no. No, that doesn't mean that you are hopeless today. It doesn't mean that you cannot have a happy, successful spiritually mature, strong Christian family of your own. No matter what family background you had, you don't have to be held back. You don't have to drag your family history around like a ball and chain. I'm here to tell you tonight that some people grew up in horrible homes, but that doesn't mean that they are condemned to live horrible lives. In the past couple of decades, therapists have popularized dysfunctional family problems and multi-generational patterns. And they've led people to believe that they are doomed to replay the same sad scenario generation after generation to make the same mistakes that their grandparents made. Well, it's true that our family is a tremendous influence on our life. But tonight I want us to recognize that there is an even more important influence. And that's our faith. Let me tell you a story tonight of one of the most remarkable and successful characters in the Bible. His is a genuine rags-to-riches story as well as a great example of faith. And it is especially significant to us tonight because this individual came from a divided and dysfunctional home. But before I can tell you his story, I'm first going to have to back up one, two, three generations. Because like so many of the family problems I'm going to talk about tonight, his situation goes back a long, long way. So let us begin tonight with, let's talk about Abraham, father 
of the faithful father of many nations, but first, Abraham was the father of two sons. You, you, you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, don't you? How faith and family issues got all tangled up together. God promised Abraham and Sarah a son, but Sarah became impatient and came up with plan B, and consequently, Abraham unexpectedly ended up with not one, but two sons. The child of promise, and that of course is Isaac, Sarah's child, and the child of the slave woman, Ishmael, and of course that was Hagar's boy, and it caused all sorts of grief to Abraham and to his family. Trapped by his lack of faith, goaded by Sarah's jealousy of Hagar's son, Abraham was eventually forced to make a decision that he shouldn't have had to make, that he didn't want to make, that a father should never make. He was pressed to choose one son over the other. So Ishmael was expelled. Isaac remained. But it was a mistake that disturbed the peace of Abraham's family and reverberated down through the generations. In fact, I could actually argue that it's still reverberating in the Middle East today. Abraham had established a pattern of partiality, of unfair favoritism in his family. Now, let's go down to the next generation. Let's talk about Isaac. Isaac married the beautiful Rebekah, and they were happy together until the children came along. And Isaac and Rebekah made a fatal mistake, one that would bring them heartache and bring their family conflict for the rest of their lives. You remember they had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And as parents, Isaac and Rebekah played favorites. Genesis 25 and verse 28 says, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. You remember the story of Esau and Jacob, how the biblical narrative veers off at this point into a sordid soap opera, complete with sibling rivalry, parental manipulation, a foolish bargain, an enraged and murderous brother. You know the story, how Esau threatened to kill Jacob, how Jacob had to leave his family and run for his life, how he went to live with his mother's people, and it was the second generation, shattered by partiality by an unfair favoritism, by a divided and dysfunctional family. So let's go down now to the third generation. First Isaac, or I'm sorry, Abraham, then Isaac, and now Jacob. You would suppose that Jacob having experienced the curse of favoritism in his own 
home would have avoided it like the plague when he began his family. Oh, no. He just continued the cycle. Genesis 29 and verse 30 tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, of course, if you remember the story, Jacob did have an unorthodox wedding. He never intended or expected to be marrying Leah. That is why ever since the days of Jacob, men have made sure to lift that veil and make sure they're kissing the right bride before they take her out of the church building. They want to make sure they get the right woman. But Jacob compounded the problem with his children. The old man was partial to the children, the two sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, but he especially favored Joseph. Do you recall what the Bible says in Genesis 37 and verse 3? Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and, although the text doesn't say it, because he was born to his favorite wife, Rachel. And he made a richly ornamented robe for Joseph. Some translations say a coat of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph, more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Let me tell you something. When parents are partial to one child over the other, they're not doing their favorite any favors. You know the rest of that story. How Joseph's jealous brothers first decided to kill him Then they threw him in a pit. Finally, they sold him into slavery to a passing caravan of Ishmaelites who carried him off to Egypt. And in the meantime, the brothers callously carried the blood-soaked coat of Joseph back to their heartbroken father. And it was the third generation shattered by partiality. Now let's talk about Joseph. Joseph is the fourth generation in this dysfunctional family cycle. Here he is, the unwitting recipient of a divided and dysfunctional family pattern handed down for three generations, and Joseph finds himself as a result sold into slavery by his brothers. If there was ever anyone who could be bitter about his family, it was Joseph. He could have easily spent the rest of his life playing the role of a victim, mourning poor old me. I came from a bad home. It's all my brother's fault. He could have wallowed in self-pity and resentment for the rest of his life, and especially in view of the next 13 years, because his situation, you know the story, it gets worse and worse and worse. Not only was Joseph sold into slavery in a strange land, he was then unjustly accused and tossed into prison. Now put yourself in Joseph's shackles for just a minute. What would we have done in that dark dungeon? How would we have reacted? 
Well, I'm afraid I know. I'm afraid we would have awakened in a dungeon where we didn't deserve to belong and we would have cursed our family day after miserable day for causing us to be trapped in a prison not of our own making. So what did Joseph do? Joseph reacted with faith. His primary relationship was not to his physical family. His primary relationship was with God. And tonight, let me briefly share with you four things Joseph did because they are the very same four things that we're going to have to do if we want to overcome a bad family background. Number one, Joseph refused to surrender to circumstances, but instead he trusted in God. Joseph never forgot that his primary responsibility was to God Almighty, and because of his faith and trust in God, Joseph always did the best that he could. He never allowed himself to become a victim, to wallow in self-pity or in shame. If he was a slave, well, hey, he was a good slave. If he was a prisoner, hey, he was a model prisoner. Joseph couldn't control the outward circumstances of his life, but by faith he could control his attitude. And he did his best when life did its worst. Now, We can do that, no matter what our circumstances. We can start right where we are right now and make the best of whatever opportunity we have to serve God faithfully. And there are people today who need to apply Joseph's example to their family. There are mothers who are struggling to raise their children by themselves because dad walked out the door years ago. There are widows and widowers who have spent 30, 40, sometimes even 50 years building a life together and suddenly they lose their partner and they have to start all over again learning how to rebuild it alone. There are people who struggle with the memories of a painful childhood and they carry the scars on the inside where no one can see. How do you handle that? Joseph responded with faith. By God's power, he did the best he could one day at a time. You know, one of the best descriptions I've ever found of faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. And that certainly applies to Joseph. All the time as you read his story, it looks like his life is sinking lower and lower and lower. But in God's providence, it was actually getting closer and closer and closer to the throne room of Pharaoh. And my friends, if your life experiences have been disappointing so far, Hold on to your faith 
and trust God to see what He has in store for your life. I'll grant you, sometimes our life experiences can seem overwhelming, but let me tell you, we serve a God who can raise Jesus from the dead, and that God is bigger than any of the circumstances of our life. What's the first thing Joseph did? He responded with faith. What's the second thing he did? Joseph refused to pass on a legacy of loss to the next generation. There is a very important clue to Joseph's success in Genesis chapter 41. And sometimes we read this story, it goes right over our head and we don't understand what's happening. You may remember in the story, Joseph marries an Egyptian wife. He has his firstborn son. And in Genesis chapter 41 and verse 51 says, Joseph took that newborn baby in his arms and he said, I'm going to call this boy Manasseh. Now Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew for the word forget. And to make sure we get the implication of that, the Bible says, Joseph says, I'm going to call this boy Manasseh because God has made me forget my family and all my father's house. Now wait a minute. Did Joseph mean that the image of his father was erased from his memory bank? Did he mean that he didn't know who his brothers were anymore? No, 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 no. That's not what Joseph is saying. Let me give you the Dan Williams paraphrase of that. Joseph looked at that little boy in his arms that represented the next generation, and he said, the nuttiness in my family stops here. I am not going to pass on a legacy of loss to the next generation. This little boy in my arms is going to have a better future than my past. Let me tell you why that's so powerful. When someone grows up with a bad family background, they can do one of two things. They can focus on their past and how all of the losses and all of the pain and all of the sorrow, but if that's all that they focus on, they are almost inevitably going to pass on some of the same problems to the next generation. But if I turn my focus around and say, I'm going to give my children what I didn't get. And by the way, some of the best parents I know or parents who've come out of a bad background, but they made this resolution. I'm going to give my children a better future than the past that I had. I'm going to name this boy Manasseh because I'm going to build a new legacy for the next generation. The third thing Joseph did in overcoming the pain of his past, he refused to be bitter but instead chose to forgive. One of the most dramatic scenes in all the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 45. You remember the story, the brothers up in Canaan were experiencing a famine. Their father said, we're all going to starve. You have got to go down to Egypt and buy some food. So they come down to Egypt where Joseph is the store master for the whole nation. And there they stand and they don't recognize their brother Joseph. To them, he's a very impressive-looking, high-ranking Egyptian official. That's all they see, but he knows them. And Joseph stands there in his Egyptian garb, 
with his Egyptian headdress and he looks at them and he says to himself, those are the brothers that threw me in the pit. Those are the brothers who were going to kill me. Those are the brothers who wanted me to go into Egypt in slavery. And he finally had his chance. Because now Joseph is second in command over all Egypt. And he holds the power of life and death in his hand. He looks at those brothers and he realizes, I can get even. I can get back at them. I can do to them what they did to me. I can have them murdered. And Joseph, with that power, chooses to forgive. It's an amazing story. He chooses to forgive. Sometimes that's the only thing people can do is forgive their family. It is possible to be obsessed with going back, evening the score, making it right, getting an apology, finally hearing them say, I'm sorry, I have counseled those people, I know. And occasionally that happens. But just as often, it never does. So what do you do about the past? You can't unsay what's been said. You can't undo what's been done to you. What's done is done, right? Well, there is one thing we can do to change the past, but only one. The only way we can break the power of the past is to forgive. Someone has well said that carrying a grudge is like carrying a cannonball around in your pocket. Now, every now and then you make it to shoot it off. But most of the time it's just going to weigh you down. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you accept what's been done to you, that you condone the wrongs that were committed. Forgiveness doesn't mean that it won't hurt or that you approve or agree with what they did. What it does mean is that you're not going to live in the past anymore. You're not going to be burdened by bitterness. You're not going to be stuck in resentment. Alcoholics Anonymous has a slogan. Resentment is suicide. And they're right. But when we, by the power of God, forgive those who have hurt us in the past, we're not just doing something gracious for them. We are ultimately setting ourselves free. And finally tonight, the fourth thing Joseph did to overcome the pain of a bad childhood He turned his misery into ministry. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, if you would. Let's look at one last scripture. Genesis chapter 50. Joseph used his circumstances to be a blessing to others. With the passing of time, Joseph grew to understand that what happened to him, yes, it was was wrong, it was bad but that it could be used by God to bring about something good. 
Do you want to break free from the burden of an unhappy childhood? Are you eager to overcome the drawback of a painful past? Then let me give you one piece of advice. Do this and do it now. Find someone to serve. Are you in Genesis chapter 50? Go down to verse 19. Joseph and his brothers are gathered together. Their father has died. His brothers are in terror because they believe that now that old dad is gone, Joseph is going to get his revenge. And look at what Joseph says in verse 19. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Yes, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And Joseph reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph learned that in the providence of God, he could take his misery and turn it into ministry. That God can take even the pain of our past and if we will allow him, can use that brokenness to be a blessing to others. In fact, some of the strongest, the healthiest people I know, some of the most sensitive and compassionate individuals I've ever met, some of the most balanced and positive folks are those people who, yes, they've been broken, but they resolved to use their brokenness to be a blessing to others. They stopped being a victim and started being a servant. Turning our misery into ministry allows us to take our past hurts out of the darkness of self-pity and shame and into the bright sunlight of honesty and service to others where they can evaporate and melt away. Whenever a person is trapped in the prison of self, the key to freedom is always service. And this is not some pie-in-the-sky theorizing either. I can look out in my congregation at the pews, because I've been there 28 years, and I know my people, and I know their backgrounds. And I can look out and I can see Karen. Her husband was killed by a drunken driver. Terrible, terrible tragedy. But over the years, she developed a ministry to other ladies who were going through terrible sorrow and grief. And she has helped dozens of women with our Ladies Grief Recovery Support Group. And she has even grown spiritually to the point that she has reached out to the man who was drunk who killed her husband. He's in prison. She sends him letters and she's encouraging him to be a Christian. Can you imagine that? I can look out in my auditorium and I can see Dale who grew up with a terrible history of abuse and neglect by his parents and over the years he turned to drugs and by God's grace he's been through our recovery ministry. He's come out of that and Dale now leads the Narcotics Anonymous group. It meets four times a week in our old youth house. I can look out and I can see Janice. Janice was in my office two weeks ago. She said, Dan, I've been praying about this. I was abused as a girl growing up. I want to start a ministry to other ladies who've been abused. She said, and I'm doing this as much for me as for them. And so we're working together to start another new ministry, a ministry to ladies who've been abused. Folks, this works. It worked for Joseph. It's work for the countless other Christians. We need to take our misery and we need to turn it into ministry. Joseph 
is an example for us of overcoming a painful past. Now, do we need strong Christians' homes? Absolutely. Should we do all that we can to improve family life? Of course. Are good families important in creating capable people? Oh, without a doubt. But does that mean that if we didn't have that kind of home growing up that we're hopeless today? Not, not necessarily. Joseph had a horrible family background. But he lived a remarkably successful life. How did he do that? By faith. By faith, he refused to surrender to circumstances, but instead trusted in God. By faith, he refused to pass on a legacy of loss to the next generation. By faith, he refused to be bitter, but instead chose to forgive. And by faith, he churned his misery into ministry. And he used that brokenness to be a blessing to others. I am so thankful that we serve a God of grace and a God of power and a God of second chances. Would you bow as we pray? Father, we thank you for the instruction of your word and the example of so many who've gone before us and for the power that you showed in the life of Joseph and for the power that you can bring to our lives. Father, if there are those in the audience tonight whose memories aren't happy ones. I pray that you would use this lesson and your word to be a blessing to them. And may we all be encouraged by the strength of your Holy Spirit and the power we find in Jesus, the resurrected one, in whose name we pray. And amen. We close with an invitation song, the same power that gave Joseph the, power, the ability to overcome his past. That power can be found in Jesus who enables us by his shed blood to start all over again. No matter what you've experienced, where you've been, how far back you've come, you're coming, you can come to the Lord and start over. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If we can help you with anything.